This is Diet of Brussels. What's in the Chequers Agreement? Uh, I'm going to omit a degree of uh, trepidation uh, on this one. Uh, it's the morning after uh, the meeting uh, at Chequers, the Prime Minister's residence up in the Chilterns. And despite having stepped on it and thought about it, I'm still not 100% sure that I understand quite what it says. But uh, I draw uh, comfort from the fact that lots of other people seem to be in the same position. So what we're going to try and do is uh, unpack this uh, a bit because it's an important document and it's something which matters. But it contains a lot of ambiguities and confusions and problems. So some uh, background. Uh, one of the things that has been a key issue for the government is a lack of clarity about what it wants the future relationship with the EU to be. So this is a point I've touched on in many previous episodes and I sense I will continue to touch upon in future episodes because whilst this is an advance on that view, it's not a resolution of it. So you remember that in recent months we've had discussions about different customs models. Uh, we haven't talked about those at any length because it was clear that they had different kinds of problems and there was a lot of pushback from uh, the EU. However, it's also been clear that in lieu of any substantial progress in the Article 50 process since Christmas, really, we have had an acceptance by the EU that uh, whilst not having a, an advance for last week's European Council meeting, we would instead have a, an advance that would be based on the white paper that will come up next week, which is based on this statement. And we'll talk about the white paper when it appears. That position and that advance matters because this is the last opportunity before uh, the summer to have some uh, real potential for uh, developing the negotiations to unlock the issues that remain around the withdrawal agreement, particularly around Ireland, and also to start setting out the path for the political declaration that will be attached to that withdrawal agreement, which will set the frame for the negotiations during transition to allow for a new relationship to come into uh, place from the end of transition at the end of 2020. Now, the way that the uh, the government has uh, consistently tried to tackle this is by trying to think about where it wants to end up, that future relationship, and then working backwards to uh, how that might fit on to the more immediate pressing issues of the withdrawal agreement. Having said all that, I think it's important to bear in mind that whilst this meeting was touted as a make or break, it's also been clear that there have been signs that uh, the different sides in Cabinet have been slowly coming together. That whilst the two customs models, the uh, maximum facilitation model of the hard Brexiters and the customs partnership of the soft Brexiters had different issues, actually there was a similar kind of intent about how to give the UK some margin of... Uh, freedom whilst also keeping uh, the barriers with the EU as small as possible but working from different ends of the process. 
It's also evident that in the week running up to this meeting at Chequers, there wasn't the same concerted action and activity from the Harbrexters in the Cabinet to oppose this. That on previous crunch points, let's imagine I'm doing air quotes for those, uh, you've seen a much more heavy uh, push against this uh, uh, the proposals that come from number 10, whether that's from uh, high-profile media interventions, op-ed columns in national newspapers, and also uh, basically more systematic trashing of what number 10 comes up with. Now, number 10's uh, partly managed that better by not letting the cabinet see any detail until the day before. But also, it's clear that the, the hard Brexters uh, have not been quite as vociferous uh, in the run-up. So we perhaps shouldn't be as surprised about the relatively uh, good level of uh, buy-in that comes in, and I'll talk about that later. So what have we got? Well, what we've got is a statement from the government. Uh, importantly, this is a political text. It's not... A legal text. So whilst we have this three-page statement which is available on the government website, that doesn't have legal force and importantly we're going to have to see how it's translated in more detail into a white paper. Having said that, even if it's not a legal text, it has been carefully drafted and as we'll see as we work through it, there are a large number of points which are ambiguous at best uh, and in some places more obviously inconsistent, but which I think points to an attempt to try and uh, cover the bases so that Cabinet's able to find something that they like, uh, whatever their particular point of view. So uh, essentially what the, the document sets out is a proposal on the future relationship, the elements that that might have, the uh, benefits that this uh, might come, which I think largely are... Uh, lines that might be taken uh, and arguments that might be made and then also a rather brief statement about the need to prepare for the full range of scenarios air quotes again that might result which is uh, something that I'll touch upon in a minute but the meat of it really is about this uh, uh, future relationship importantly uh, the statement opens by reaffirming the timetable that is uh, currently accepted by all parties. So that means leaving at the end of March next year, a transition period that comes to the end in 2020. Now, having said that, some of the language suggests that this will go a long way beyond 2020 uh, as uh, things go on. But it's, uh, again, partly about the signaling to say that this is actually happening. And as we've seen in subsequent communications from number 10 and from the government, the number one thing that they ask to be judged on is that the UK will cease to be a member state on the 29th of March 2019. So this future position, what's, uh, what's in it? Well, uh, after some reflection, as they say, they uh, think that the vision is fundamentally sound but that it needed to evolve so uh, a little bit of uh, something for everyone uh, so this is a claims to be a precise responsible and credible basis for progressing negotiations now that's not the same as saying 
that it is a fixed position and it's important to, to keep that in mind that this is uh, part of a negotiation and actually the language around that suggests that this is something that they expect to see develop as it goes along. The four key elements are of a uh, common rule book for goods, um, reciprocal commitments to free trade, consistent interpretation of UK-EU agreements and a facilitated customs arrangement. What do each of those mean? Well, the first one is, in essence, an attempt to try and have a, uh, a continuation of uh, the free movement of goods, and that would include agricultural goods. Uh, and that extension partly is about uh, Northern Ireland because a lot of the trade that happens between North and South is about agricultural products. Now, here it says that the, the UK and EU would maintain a common rule book for all goods, uh, which sounds good, uh, but which doesn't exist. There isn't a common rule book. Uh, and again, this is something which is going to be problematic for the EU, that this would be, uh, in essence, a, a bit of cherry-picking, that services are explicitly uh, excluded from this. They would strike different arrangements without specifying what they might be, which looks like an attempt to hive off uh, goods from services. So whilst the idea here is, if you like, uh, something like a free trade model together with ongoing harmonization with EU rules, that is not necessarily uh, an acceptable position for the EU and you could imagine that there will be some uh, issues around that. There's also already here uh, a real tension. On the one hand, the document talks often about harmonization and alignment with EU rules, but it also says that Parliament would have uh, the last say in the implementation and incorporation of those rules into UK law. Now, uh, it says that there would be the ability to choose not to do so, recognising that this would have consequences. Now, uh, that would be putting it uh, mildly uh, because uh, the single market is bundled together, so not implementing parts of it largely would imply that you can't have any of it. So it's uh, all or nothing uh, as a, a grouping of uh, legislation and indeed of other instruments. So there's a lot of language here which says one thing but does another thing and we might just think a little bit about that as we go along. And I think one of the things we see a bit later, some wording in the document that talks about uh, giving uh, Parliament and devolved institutions uh, oversight and scrutiny, uh, but having a lock on incorporating rules into UK legal order. Now, actually, that's what happens at the moment. That under the European Communities Act, Parliament has accepted that uh, it's made a decision that the EU is allowed to make decisions for the UK. So if you're going to be a legal pedant about it, this actually doesn't change anything. That As long as the withdrawal agreement says the UK commits to allow the EU to make decisions for it, which is essentially the wording uh, that you find in the uh, European Communities Act, then you meet this condition. Now, uh, there's always a difficulty here with uh, British parliamentary sovereignty because Parliament can never be bound 
even by itself, so it's always free to change its mind. But uh, the wording is going to be something which is going to be highly problematic, and we can talk about that uh, as well in respect to court, which will come up in a minute. Uh, as well as alignment uh, and harmonisation with the EU on goods, you have the second element, which is uh, reciprocal arrangements uh, on f open and fair trade. Uh, that's partly about state aids, again, this common rule book, doesn't exist, uh, and competition, uh, but also uh, high regulatory standards on the environment, climate change, social unemployment, and consumer protection rights. Now, the way that that largely will have to work is that the UK will have to follow the EU because uh, there would be uh, little sense in the EU accepting that it now has to make all of those things subject to agreement with the UK. So uh, the weight suggests that the EU will make decisions and uh, the UK will follow along. So we're talking here about a very large area of alignment that would extend beyond goods, but which might be on a more... Uh, distant uh, and non-explicit kind of agenda. The third part is about the interpretation and application of agreements. Uh, and this is another key area that's been a real sticking point in the withdrawal agreement about what happens about governance issues. Now here we're looking at something that's a bit like the Ukrainian model that the EU's developed, which is that there would be a joint committee, uh, binding independent arbitration, that, but also uh, a sense that you can't have the court of one party, so the court of justice, resolving disputes between the two parties. Now, this is uh, part of a wider push again to limit and end the jurisdiction of the ECJ in the UK. Uh, the document talks about ending preliminary references to the ECJ on points of EU law. But that, again, is something which is a, a red line for the EU, that uh, the last arbiter of EU law is the Court of Justice, and that it's not in a position to change that, even if it wants to, which it doesn't. So again, we've got this ambiguity about whether uh, this will work, and if it does work, how it might work. So it might be that what this pushes towards is trying to have some kind of uh, joint panel that uh, the ECJ and UK courts uh, could sit on, uh, or representatives of the two bodies could sit on to interpret the provisions of the agreement. But in terms of the meaning of EU uh, rules, as the document says, the Court of Justice would have to remain the interpreter of what they actually mean. And in many cases, given the degree of alignment that would be two EU standards, that means that the Court of Justice necessarily will have jurisdiction. So we have that, that ambiguity. But again, coming back to this point about being a political agreement, this is something that is uh, about the politics uh, and giving uh, individuals uh, some language to take back to their constituencies. Now we come here to the, the last substantial point, which is 
paragraph, paragraph 5, which talks about how this would help the Irish issue. It says that it would preserve the integrity of the UK, honour the letter and spirit of the Belfast Agreement, and ensure that the uh, backstop wouldn't need to be brought into effect. Now, this is the paragraph that's given most trouble to commentators because the wording is very ambiguous. Things that aren't ambiguous are that the UK here is signing up to the backstop agreement. It's saying that the backstop agreement is acceptable. Now, that really matters because that had not been clear in previous discussions and debates, but uh, I think really does matter because it does provide that backstop uh, arrangement as the ultimate sanction. However, it's not clear whether this means that the UK still thinks that the backstop is something that requires UK-wide alignment or just Northern Irish alignment, as the EU has argued. And uh, it's really not evident from this document. I think we would have to wait for the uh, white paper document uh, to come through before we could make anything uh, clearer about that. But again, it's nominally allowing the UK to claim that it's met its objectives and its commitments and obligations both uh, in the Good Friday Agreement and in uh, the joint report from last December, even though it doesn't actually explain quite how that might be the case. So again, this model of working from the future back to the present, I think, is particularly clear there. We'll skip over the, the benefits because I think those are fairly much uh, about just uh, lines to take. I mean, we'll note that there's a commitment to leave the common agricultural policy and the common fisheries policy, which might be problematic in terms of maintaining a uh, close relationship, uh, not least because it doesn't really set out what might uh uh, happen uh, afterwards I and mean, we've had recent document uh, from the government about fisheries but a lot of things are very uh, uncertain at this point. The other notable point in the benefits is that free movement ends um, but that's then immediately followed by a mobility framework which says that citizens can continue to travel to each other's territories and apply to work and study. Now that's framed in a very open way which potentially means that you end up with something not a million miles from the free movement of workers that was in the treaties uh, as they were originally framed. So a narrower definition. The reference to study uh, I will take as a positive that somebody works in a university, but I'm also aware, as various people pointed out, that Theresa May's attitudes towards student mobility has not been particularly positive in the past, so we might take that with a degree of caution. And finally, this uh, favourite adjective of the May administration, ending vast annual payments to the EU budget. Um, vast means whatever you mean it to, um, but it leaves enough uh, room for manoeuvre to continue substantial payments. Uh, yes, I, I can imagine question time. Uh, and Prime Minister's questions about what that might be. The very last point of this document is a section on preparedness, saying we have to prepare for a uh, possibility of a no deal. It says, given the short period remaining before the necessary conclusion of negotiations this autumn, 
we agreed preparations should be stepped up. That sounds uh, reasonable and responsible, but it comes with no detail. And so one of the things that will be interesting in the white paper is whether there is any more language about that no deal uh, preparation. So this is, I think, matched with the uh, language that we've seen from Brussels about the need to increase contingency planning. But again, the intent very much here is about trying to pull this to a conclusion in October uh, or by latest in December. So that's the documents. Um, I think a couple of words about the operationalization and the, the next steps from this. Associated with this document was a letter that went out to MPs last night, which reaffirmed that collective responsibility was back uh, in a full effect. So that suspension of collective responsibility that uh, the uh, Cameron uh, administration had uh, given around the referendum is now very explicitly off the table. And one of the things that's been quite striking is that that has been uh, reinforced uh, at Parliament, at Cabinet level. So yesterday's meeting was very much about reasserting the power of Number 10 to tell the Cabinet what is and isn't possible. So potentially at this point, there is now a requirement for all MPs to buy into this uh, and to at least not criticise it and to defend it if uh, pushed. The test will come with uh, whether the uh, Conservative backbench, the European Research Group, uh, takes uh, an even stronger disliking to it than uh, the like disliking that it suggested it would take in uh, the week and in, in early comments from them. However, uh, it's so far seems to be something which is holding, and if it does hold, that strengthens Theresa May's position in all of this. It's also become clear this morning that uh, the government, rather than trying to roll this on to, to push it forward, actually now is having a bit of a pause. It's saying that it's not available for negotiations with the Commission on this until the 16th of July, so that's uh, a week and a half away. Now, partly you might explain that because of the need to work up the white paper, uh, and partly you might expect that the round of bilateral diplomacy that the government's going to be taking and has already been undertaking is something that they want to try and get into more before they uh, get to the uh, Article 50 negotiations. They might try and get more member states or some member states more on their side so that the Commission is, is bound to accept it. And this really is the, the main question mark over all of this is What's the reaction to this document from either the Conservative backbench and more particularly from the Commission? Is this something that can be worked with? The preliminary indications are that the Commission is going to make a, <laughs> an effort to try and uh, find the, the positives from this. Clearly there are issues, which I've talked about, about the courts, about the uh, role of Parliament, in all of this, but given the time frame, this is likely to be the only text that the Commission is going to get from the UK uh, apart from that white paper. 
<coughs> now that means uh, uh, we, we might see something that looks, as somebody put it, not like uh, the final waltz, but something that is about uh, getting the UK to the edge of the dance floor so that the Commission can then take it uh, out for a spin uh, as the music plays. So we should expect this to be uh, changing dynamically. One of the things I think is particularly striking is the ambiguity in the language that we see at many points, which suggests that uh, groundwork is being laid for further movement of the British position. So I hope that that's useful. I am uh, happy always to answer questions. If people want to uh, ask for further elaboration stuff, just drop me a line at our website, uh, which is www.adartofbrussels.com, or on Twitter, which is at adartofbrussels, and we shall go from here. And in the meantime, uh, have a good weekend, and we shall talk again about the white paper next week.